Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm Justin, joined by my co-host Henry. Say hello, Henry. Howdy. This evening we're joined by two very special guests, co-authors of Karnov, phantom-clad writer of the Cosmic Ice, and musicians Howie Bentley and Matthew Knight of Cauldron Born, Britain Writes, and Eternal Winter. Gentlemen, how the hell are you? Feeling good. Right here. Yeah. How about yourself? Doing good tonight, man. It's a pleasure to have both of you guys. I guess yeah, thanks for having us. No problem, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's get started at the beginning. Howie, Matt, what sort of films, fiction, music, board games, comics, all that good stuff for you guys consuming as kids to forge your imagination? Start with Howie. Matt, you go first. Oh, no, we'll start oh, with Matt. With Howie said start with Matt. Okay, Matt, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Been into the heavy metal music, you know, I was young, you know, went from like rock stuff into kind of what was happening at the times and then when i discovered real true heavy metal um i, I just kind of took off with it that kind of led into this fantasy themed metal thing so yeah that that was my biggest thing uh when i was younger also books i, I guess I, I got uh into fantasy type stuff i started off reading things like Dragonlance and whatnot and then eventually moved into uh you know sword and sorcery i was actually first got into that um i think Michael Moorcock was one of the first sword and sorcery guys I got into. Aside from that, yeah, just all the, you know, imaginative stuff, you know, stories and comics, all, all that kind of thing. As far as movies, yeah, a lot of uh, like gothic horror stuff. I'm really into the Hammer films. Some other kind of more obscure stuff. I, I like the, some of the Spanish horror movies, the Paul Nashy films. Yeah, just tons and tons of stuff. What were some of the bands that got you into heavy metal starting off? Starting off was into... I guess some of the pretty heavier stuff, um, like black metal and whatnot, when I, when I was when I was a teen, and then, um, like I said, discovered like real true heavy metal. Um, I guess some of the first ones that I really got into was, of course, like you know Judas Priest and bands like that. Then, um, like uh, Jag Panzer and Iced Earth. Wow. Those were some of the first melodic kind of bands that I heard in the '90s that uh, really kind of turned me on to some of the '80s stuff, and then I just kind of went crazy with it. Awesome. Howie, you're up, man. What about you? What what helped forge your imagination when you were younger? Well, as far as reading, I was uh, really into comic books when I was a kid back in the 70s. You know, just superhero and stock kind of comic book stuff. And then when I was about 9 or 10 years old, I started getting into reading paperbacks. And I was reading um, Doc Savage, which was, um, you, I guess you would consider it a uh, men's adventure type paperbacks, but for young people. Right. And... From there, as I got into my uh, early teens, I was in the Savage Sword of Conan, and and then I saw the Conan movie, and that uh, left quite an impression on me. So I went out and bought the books, the um, Ace paperbacks with the Frank Frazetta covers, and started reading all those through high school. And at the same time, when I was in high school, my library had a, not the whole set, but a collection of the John Carter uh, Mars uh, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And so I was reading that stuff, too. So that <clears throat> helped form my early reading habits, I guess, was reading uh, Howard and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. As far as films, 
uh, of course, I mentioned the Conan the Barbarian, and I was fortunate to have grown up in the 80s when this sort of thing, this sword and sorcery thing was kind of uh, uh, sort of a trend back then. The, yep. There were very few great sword and sorcery movies made. Uh, John Milius's Conan the Barbarian, to me, is my favorite movie of all time, as well as, I think, probably the best sword and sorcery movie ever made. But second to that, I would say The Sword and the Sorcerer and movies like Fire and Ice, which is an animated thing Frazetta was involved in. And also, and, and this is something I saw in later years, not back then, but one of my favorite sword and sorcery movies is uh, Deathstalker. And that was recommended to me by uh, Andrew, Andrew J. Offit, who I used to talk with over the phone, a fellow Kentuckian and uh, sword and sorcery author of uh, some renown. He used to edit Swords Against Darkness, a series of paperbacks. And that's where I was first introduced to authors like David C. Smith and Richard L. Tierney and so on. But anyway, I'm, I'm branching off here in all kinds of directions with this. So, yeah, so when I was growing up in the 80s, I think that I liken it to when my father's generation was growing up. They were really into West, and my dad read a lot of Westerns. He was an avid reader, too. Read a lot of Westerns when he was younger and was really, even, you know, in old age, he was into all these Western, still watched these Western movies. And when the era I grew up in, the sword and I think was sword and sorcery, even though to a lesser degree than the the Western genre, was something that appealed to my generation. And I was sort of a product of my time to a degree because uh, it was easier to be exposed to these things. Well, I say that, but with the Internet, it's easy to be exposed to anything now. Right. But yep. back then, you know, there were always movies coming out like Beastmaster and so on, which, you know, on Red Sonja, which I didn't think were that great, but I watched them back then. But anyway, that's the, the reading and the film part. And the, the metal music, I got into hard rock music in the 70s. My cousin played me a Kiss record. It was Detroit Rock City and whatever the B-side was. I was like, mm, that's pretty cool. And before that, I hadn't noticed music. My dad was a musician as a hobby and he played in some country and and rock like classic rock what had been classic rock back then those type bands and so there's always music around the house but I, I thought music was kind of lame until I discovered this hard rock when I was like 11 years old I was like that's pretty cool that kiss thing but I always wanted something heavier. So later on, I got into Ted Nugent, and he was really my first guitar hero. And then uh, and then a little bit later, ACDC. And I listened to that for a while, and a little bit of Van Halen, too, when they came along. But I wasn't really – I had a guitar. I learned a few chords. I initially wanted to play drums, but my dad was too smart for that. He wasn't going to hear all that racket. <laughs> so he's like, well, we, we got a guitar here to learn to play that first. So I learned some chords. I learned some riffs and whatnot, but I wasn't totally – you know, just obsessed with playing music at the time, but I really loved hard rock music. And then in 1981, I heard Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz album and Randy Rhodes playing on that just blew me away. I'm like, I've got to learn to play the guitar. This is like nothing else mattered at the time except playing, practicing guitar, cutting school, practicing guitar, and just being with it all the time. So that, and hearing that Ozzy Osbourne album, got me into Black Sabbath as well. And then I was just totally discovering this whole world I hadn't known anything about that was going on on the other side of the Atlantic it was this British heavy metal. And I got into Black Sabbath and then I got into Judas Priest and then a little bit later Iron Maiden. And from then on, it just took off. And I also, there was a local record store that had import albums on vinyl. Man, I would go in there and pick albums out by the album covers. And I'd get stuff mm -hmm. like Venom, Witchfinder General, Heavy Load, 
and that kind of thing. So it, it really just became an obsession with me, uh, heavy metal music. That's awesome. How hearing you saying most of that sounds like it sounds like my story, but I'm from the South, of course, grew up with my grandparents. Like you said, I think all boys go through that cowboy phase when they're young because of the generation you grew up around. And I just remember watching John Wayne movies and John Wayne movies and every Clint Eastwood movie known to man back in those days for, oh yeah, branched off a little. Anyway, so Matt, ultimately, what would you say was the catalyst for you joining slash starting your own band? Well, I, did, I started playing in bands when I was pretty young. Even uh, when I was like in elementary school, I would like have these imaginary bands, you know. Other kids would be playing with G.I. Joes and stuff, and I'm like drawing my imaginary album cover for my band I'm going to make. So really early on, I had, I had the idea um, that I wanted to play music and be in a band. Then throughout throughout school middle school and high school i played in various bands and it always was like kind of playing with kids that also have the instruments and can play but you never really kind of doing really what you want to do i always wanted to be kind of the composer and the mastermind behind behind my band so it wasn't until i was 18 that i was like okay well now i'm gonna you know do my own thing and be the composer behind my own band and yeah it just was like a cumulative thing by that time i had i become a good enough musician to where i could do it Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it was just the right time. All the influences were there. Now's the time and did it. And yeah, been going ever since. So Howie, what was the catalyst for you back in the 90s for starting Cauldron Born? Well, I had uh, left Kentucky and moved down to Atlanta where I spent most of my life. And uh, I went there to go to Atlanta Institute of Music. Upon graduating, I wanted to put a band. To, well, I didn't initially want to put a band together. I was looking around before I graduated for bands and the scene was sort of bleak. I heard all these uh, great stories about those heavy bands. Everybody's like, oh, you're into that heavy stuff. You need to go down south, move further down south to Atlanta or whatever. And the Tampa thing wasn't going on at the time, the death metal thing, I think, or we didn't know about it. But So I go down there primarily to go to school, and I didn't, um, when I got there, I was certainly underwhelmed because most of the bands are what we call poser bands back in the day, you know, playing hard rock like Poison, that kind of (laughs) stuff, and Cinderella. And then there were these bands that were doing, um, they were like the opposite end of the spectrum where they were doing stuff that was more punk and hardcore. And I, I wasn't into the punk thing. I know some people come to metal through punk, but I came to metal through hard rock, as I mentioned earlier, like Ted Nugent and ACDC and stuff like that. So I was more, you know, with the, I was more the leather pants type musician. Right. And, um, so uh, there was nothing going on. So I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to have to form my own band if I'm going to get to play the kind of music I wanted to play. And at the time, the thrash thing was really going on. I was listening to bands like, uh, of course, I was really into traditional metal still, but I was listening to bands like Coroner and Holy Terror and, Terror and stuff like that. I wanted to kind of meld the two together, which was the traditional Iron Maiden kind of sound with a a thrasher, more aggressive kind of sound. And nobody was really doing that there. And and it was just so hard to find somebody, particularly a drummer, that could do really well on that. So I formed my own band, and it took a while. And I ended up getting the bass player and the drummer from, uh, they were also students at Atlanta Institute of Music. They graduated after I did. They were some years younger than me. Formed a band, and it was really, it was an uphill struggle by then because, you know, you mentioned the 90s, and by then all the record labels that had signed metal bands had thrown them under the bus and they were signing uh these grunge bands and an alternative and all that which i totally was opposed to that was just the um antithesis of what i i was about and so i 
that's what inspired me to um, put together Cauldron Born, and eventually it came together, and we, you know, started doing some recordings. Recorded the Sword Sorcery and Science demo in 1994, and then of course the singer was always a problem uh, at the time, so we lost that singer, and then it took it would take a long time to find some uh, musicians to keep the band going because everybody was into what the what was trendy at the time, what the record labels were signing. Right. But yeah, that's pretty much pretty much it. It's kind of curious, so. You know, kind of tapping a little bit more into that uh, issues you were finding in the 90s when you formed your band. Can you talk a little bit about, did you have to shop around your first album first? Did you have difficulty finding a home for it? Not really, because by then, at first when I was making the demos tape tapes, I backing up, I made a demo tape in 1993 under my own name called Beyond the Shade Gate. It was a four-song demo, and I borrowed members from other bands, borrowed a singer from another band, and I borrowed a drummer from yet another band, and then I played the bass, all the guitar and the bass and wrote all the songs and the lyrics and so on, and I didn't know what to do with it because the whole thing just seemed like it was dead to me. But I was trying. I was trying to get my demos out and everything, and not many people paid attention to that demo. But then in 1994, we recorded the Sword, Sorcery, and Science demo, and I discovered this magazine. I was going by Tower Records. I went out to book a gig in Gainesville, and on the way back, I stopped off. I don't know why, just because Tower Records was on the way. And I saw this magazine in there called Sentinel Steel which was a magazine put, it was a fanzine put out by this guy named Dennis Gulby. And I think he was in New Jersey at the time. And he was really fighting for true metal in the United States. And I'm like, well, I'll send this guy a demo. So I sent, sent him the Sword, Sorcery, and Science demo, and he loved it. Gave us just a, a great review. And he reviewed Beyond the Shade Gates demo as well. And all these pe- all of a sudden, all these people were writing, of course, this is pre-internet. All these guys were writing me letters from Germany and Greece and all over Europe and wanting to buy these demos. And I was selling boxes of these demos in Japan. So some labels, I mean, they were underground labels, but they started contacting me. And eventually I ended up going with Underground Symphony in Italy. And uh, we released out, we recorded it in 1996 and released it in 1997. You know, it's amazing that it seems, and I guess it's, it's probably been like this with a lot of the music scene where these, you know, these independent zines, Especially, you know, pre-internet era, it was these zines and these old, you know, hand-me-down tape copies of tape copies that were being sent around to people. But that really was keeping, you know, some of these genres that kind of waned a little bit in terms of cultural popularity. And, you know, a lot of these zines and tapes were really what kept these fans connected after, you know, things were waning a little bit. Did you ever have any of the issues? You know, there's a lot of, there was a lot of those genres in the 90s that like uh, black metal, there was not saying anything bad about them, but, you know, there was a lot of controversy with a, with Moribund Records and I think Metal Blade Records had some controversy about contract situations with, with bands. Did you ever have any issues like that? No, not really. I don't think we ever got good enough of a deal to have, <laughs> to have any <laughs> issues with the label. And eventually that's why I started putting stuff out on my own label because I don't, I've never heard a, a label story that wasn't a sad one. But um, yeah. While we're on the subject of Cauldron Born, Howie Matt is the new vocalist for The Revival. So uh, what plans do you guys have for the band going forward? And what does Matt bring to the table for Cauldron Born for you, Howie? Well, I'd known Matt for quite some time. We had um, we've been corresponding for, I guess, 10, 10, 15 years. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Something like that. 
Matt's the complete package. I mean, he's a great vocalist. He's into the sword and sorcery kind of vibe, too. He's genuinely into that, which I never had a singer who was before. I'd written all the lyrics for him. I would stand there and tell him how to pronounce things while they're singing in the studio and all, all this stuff. But So he's he's really the complete package. I mean, he's he has a great voice and one thing that most singers don't have because matt is also he also plays instruments a number of instruments and he's studied music he's schooled in music so he knows how to properly do a harmony whereas most singers don't even i mean they say they're going to practice their harmonies or whatever they don't even know you know what a third or a fifth is <laughs> so you know he can stack all these harmonies and do all this stuff and he's got the uh he's into the sword and sorcery thing and quite an uh, accomplished musician and singer on his in his own band and and he he looks like a heavy metal singer whereas <laughs> yeah. uh you know and, and you get in my age these other guys they don't they can't even pull off a photo shoot for a, a cd and uh matt definitely got that going on too so like i say he's a complete package but um and i've been rambling on here so what was the other part of the question what plans do you guys have for uh called born and uh, maybe an album eventually oh yeah well we're re-recording some stuff where there are two albums that are going to come out this summer we've been re-recording some of the songs from the anne shall fall session and those will be released first and um with with matt on vocals we have another album that we're working on now that Matt's already recording vocals for that involved the lyrics are in reference to a number of the stories that I've had published and as well as the novel that I'm work, currently working on. It's an Argentier novel. Argentier is one of my characters. Uh, he's a barbarian swordsman who transforms into a werewolf. And so the, t- the album title is going to come with that. I'm not going to reveal the album title at this point. Sorry. Anyway, that's and, and then in reference to some stuff I've already had published, like in my... Um, collection the snake man's bane and oh, yeah. uh, which are a number of argentier stories and also some thorn stories and thorn is the caldermore mascot who is on the cover of uh, all the caldermore albums up to this point and will continue to be on future caldermore album covers but nice. uh, anyway and so i'll let i guess matt answer the the question as well oh uh, yeah um thanks Allie, for everything you said yeah i'm uh just really digging singing some different material that i really really like and i'm really into i've always done my own stuff you know and in my band i i write all the music so being able to approach somebody else's music and put my own you know, my own touch on it that has been really cool so far. Correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but did did you not? You came up with the idea for Carnov yourself, right? The character. Oh uh, yeah, actually, I did. I had read. I mentioned this in the uh, the prologue at the end of the book. I had read the book called Gore Kinslayer, which came out I think in 1979. That was a similar idea, but but it was done with like a whole lot of authors. I think there was like a dozen of them, and they all took uh, an unfinished Robert E. Howard tale and ran with it and did this round robin thing. And there were some pretty well known guys, you know well-known guys in the sword and sorcery i think richard l tyranny and michael moorcock were in there and several others but anyway they, they did this book i really enjoyed it because i, I like reading all the different authors take on you know what was going to happen in the story and i liked how when the chapter would change you know it, it you could really tell it was like oh, okay it was definitely so many different because this is a whole different vibe and at the time 
Howie and Byron and I were all writing stories that were like appearing in these anthologies, similar anthologies. And we were all friends corresponding, the heavy metal guys, you know, writing children's and sorcery stories. So I um, just kind of had the idea, like, you know, so I'm always coming up with these crazy ideas. Like, mm, let me dive into this other crazy project, <laughs> you know. And that was one of them that, that just kind of struck me. And I asked Howie and Byron if they would be into it. And, um, yeah, both of them. Yeah, def- definitely, you know, we're like right away, like, yeah, definitely, let's do it. That's how it uh, came about. I read Phantom Clad Rider. I didn't actually realize that you had kind of based it off of a, not based, but indirectly was was inspired by it. But, you know, really, when I was reading through it, I almost kind of, in a way, it was kind of like an old mythology, kind of like an oral mythology. You know, a story is told by another individual around a, around a campfire to a new group that had passed on. And the story, you know, each iteration kind of changes depending on who's telling it. And I thought that was a really nice touch. It really brought That's a really life. Cool. It really brought a life to the character. I always was curious to see, you know, what was coming next for him, what what elements were going to be added to him. You know, as you get to know some authors and their works, there's there's a certain expectation that comes with their writing over time, and then I think that helps to kind of subvert that expectation. So I just wanted I wanted to mention that was a, it made it all the more enjoyable to, to see both of your sides and the other author's take on the character. Thanks. Yeah, um, you know, that that's kind of how it was. You know, I, I penned the first tale or the first section of the, of the first episode, sent it on to Howie and was just like, all right, let's see where he takes it, what he does with it, you know? And then he would do his thing and then he would, you know, send it to Byron and everyone got to put their own their own spin on it, which which was really cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you appreciated that aspect. Oh, I want to see an album inspired about it, but that's just kind of a oh, fanboy yeah. thing. Ooh, yeah, got to have a Carnot album somewhere down the road. Man, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> well, there is a Carnot song that's going to be on this a new album that I mentioned that we're planning on releasing this summer, probably late summer by the time we get the second album out. That's right. And there's a Carnot song that, as of now, we plan to close the the album with. So that that's a. That's a start with the Karnoff thing anyway. <laughs> That's good news. I, before Henry mentioned it, I, the way in which the story is written is very intriguing to me. Like uh, Matt and Howie and Byron, you guys taking turns. So how did you guys decide on the order in which you would tell the story? Did did Matt, you just, you're just like, I'm just going to send this to Howie and how, Matt's going to start us off. Howie continues, Byron goes. And was it just natural? Yeah, I, th- I think, I think we talked about it um, ahead of time. I was kind of struggling to come up with an idea uh, to, to, you know, just, for the whole thing. And then um, there's actually some song lyrics I wrote that inspired it. And, and I was going through this paperwork and, and I pulled out these song lyrics to an Eternal Winter song uh, that hasn't been recorded yet. And it had this thing in there about about this phantom clad rider and these vampire girls and all this. And I thought, well, cool idea. Let me, let me see where I could go with this. And I came up with just a concept for the character. And then um, I think since I was kind of rolling with it, we said that, you know, I would write the first thing. And then uh, I don't know how we really, like, decided. But then I sent it on to Howie. He was able to continue it. And Howie and I would always talk about how Byron had he had the, like, most difficult job because he would have to he append the epic conclusion to, yeah. to you know, each one of the things we would do. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a tough job. I'm glad I didn't have to do the end. <laughs> but, <laughs> Me too. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's it just kinda happened and um yeah, it worked out great, I think. I know you can't mention the title of the album, but I, I'm kinda curious, can you mention who you tapped for the artwork? Because that that was such a big part of a lot of these cauldron board albums for me was just the artwork just drew me in. I mean kinda like the I mean a lot of the 
a lot of heavy metal albums. Like the artwork just looked amazing. And when I would listen to these albums, I could see the artwork coming alive in my imagination as I'm listening through. So I was just curious, can you talk about who who you're tapping for and kind of what your what your ideas are for the front cover? Well, as far as uh, I can tell you, we had Bebeto De Rose, who did the Karnoff cover, do the re-recorded songs from the old sessions. As far as the completely new Call to Morn album, I haven't gotten to the artwork yet, but it'll likely be either Bebeto or Brian LeBlanc. Uh, both of those guys do uh, covers for DMR books. And I really like both of their work. So it'll, it'll be one or the other on the completely new album. But the album that's going to come out first this summer was the cover has already been done by Bebeto De Rose. I wanted to ask you both specifically, we could start with Howie. What is your process for writing? Are you an outliner? Do you sit down and try to write in a stream and go back and edit later? What's it look like? I really just write a synopsis and go from there. And usually the longer the story is, the more it changes halfway through anyway. So I put down some ideas. I don't even, I mean, even on my novel, I did somewhat of an outline. It's really like a long synopsis. Mm-hmm. And so many things have, I'm only like a third of the way into that novel. I've had to put it on the back burner how many times for other things. And especially since I started playing music again, because I quit playing music for about five, six years, something like that. I didn't even play guitar until I recorded that Britain Wright's album last fall. But anyway, uh, so yeah, I, um, I just have gotten to where my, I was once an outliner, but now it's just, come to synopsises and and i expect them to change i don't expect it to um, strictly follow that how about you matt do you outline much uh not much at all for me um it's kind of like uh i just it's like insanity i just sit down and, and, and start writing and then put it away and you know go have a drink and play some music or something and then come back to it and then look at what i wrote and then say okay well i'm gonna change this change that but, but still at the same time, keep moving forward with it. I don't really do much outlining. I, I do. I had a lot of these kind of ideas strike me in the middle of the night or something or, or, or during, during a weird time. And I just like immediately like jot them down or something, but then just immediately go try to get the story moving along so I can incorporate it. Then of course, you know, when, when it's done, go back, go back and do some pretty heavy edit, editing. So I'm kind of curious, and this is for uh, both. Can you share, if you had to narrow it down, if you had to tell our audience quintessential fantasy or sword of sorcery book that you feel that every fan should read, what would it be? Just one? <laughs> five. Uh, five, five. What are your top ones? The ones that, the ones that have my top one. Yeah. Well, if I'm going to go with a novel, I would say Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard is definitely the measuring stick uh, there. I would also uh, say the collection Tales of Zothique by Clark Ashton Smith, The Broken Sword by Paul Anderson, The Sorcerer's Shadow by David C. Smith, and um, the collection The Scroll of Toth by uh, Richard L. Tierney, and also The Drums of Chaos by Richard L. Tierney. And uh, I'm not even going to get into sword and planet. You asked for sword and sorcery, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so I'll I'll cut it off there, and then let's let's hear Matt's picks. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if I if I could come up with just one. The entire Eternal Champion cycle by 
Michael Moorcock, um, I love. It's one of my favorites. And I, and I can't really choose. I mean, I love Corum and Hawkmoon just as much as I like Elric. And, you know, <laughs> those are tons and tons of books. Definitely all those. Um, I also am a big fan of The Broken Sword by Paul Anderson. Clark Ashton Smith, yeah, Zotique and Navarroin and all that stuff. Theo Moore, I really love. Jarell of Joyery, those are really cool, dark, and weird tales that have kind of a lush, mystical vibe. I really like like that. Mythaline by Michael Shea, I'm a big fan of. Of course, Robert E. Howard, you know, especially Solomon Kane and Cole. I feel like I'm just going down the list of all the stuff <laughs> on my bookshelf, but um, yeah, those would probably be, be some of my favorites for sure. Howie, you released a, a demo for Britain Rights in 2009, and you just said you didn't pick up, you guys had a full album in 2010, I'm sorry. Uh, you said you didn't pick up guitar again until you released Occult Fantastique in 2020. So what led you back to the guitar and music in general? Did you just get bit on the ass or something? Well, there were some things going on in my personal life. For one, my wife and best friend of 27 years was diagnosed with cancer, and I, I lost her to cancer in 2014. And that sort of affected me in some ways to where... I can't really go into the whole thing, explain, but I just didn't, I just had no desire to play music for a while. And, and I just, uh, put it on a back burner and I decided I need to make some changes in my life. So I moved back up to rural Kentucky. I, I was getting into writing at the time. That was really a, a, a fortunate thing for me because I, around this time I lost my wife, I got invited to write for these anthologies and, um, I, uh, started writing and found out it was a really good catharsis. And then I uh, needed a break from music and I was really enjoying writing. So I decided to move back to rural Kentucky in the mountains and Southeastern Kentucky and just I own property up here. And, uh, and I would just concentrate on writing for a while. And I did that, but, uh, I was getting to the point where I was getting more and more so writer's block. I was really wanting to get back into music it, being away from it for a while um had had really renewed my interest in playing music and so i decided well i had that britain rights album written for 10 years or whatever and i really should record those songs and uh so i did that and decided to get back into the thing with calder born and which is you know closely related to the writing because uh, the sword and sorcery i write and this whole thing it all goes together the music of calder born is very much a, a sword and sorcery thing it's just a, expressing that sort of i don't know that aesthetic or whatever you would call it uh through music and instead of writing anyway i hope that answered your question yes sir i'd say it did you mentioned that you're writing both of you guys mentioned that your writing processes are kind of you know you don't really outline much how does that translate to your your musical writing are you would you say you're a bit more particular about things when it comes to music as opposed to writing I, not really music for me is i'd I'm not real structured. It just hits me. It's a, the muse tends to visit a lot easier for music than it does for writing, for me anyway. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I can write on command. I could sit and write all day, or in, and then I really get inspired sometimes. And it's usually when I, I want to go to bed that when this sort of thing hits you, you know, because there's a, I'll paraphrase a Lovecraft quote. Uh, Lovecraft said something to the degree of, uh, if you've never written it at night, you don't know whether you can write or not. And that's when all the magic happens as far as creativity, no matter, I think really what sort of medium you use. Anyway. Yeah. So the m music is much more natural to me to, put songs together and, and pieces and ideas and whatnot than writing because sometimes I have to force myself to write whereas I don't with music. Yeah, I have a pretty similar approach. Um, a lot of times I'm just inspired and, and, you know, a lot of times from reading or, or whatever, just 
some some have some creative spark. I'll sit down and you know with the guitar sometimes or at the keyboard or whatever, and something will come out. And you know the biggest thing is just getting it recorded or getting it on paper. Once I have that idea kind of solidified, I will then kind of get a bit more technical with it, and then, and then that's when I got the pen and paper and I'm you know score out like um, harmonies and and um, you know kind of elaborate on on the idea especially with some of the vocal arrangements and also like some symphonic parts that that uh you know we do on keyboards that kind of stuff is a bit more involved i'll get kind of you know into figuring out what's the best way to you know to add that stuff in there yeah for the most part it, it's just just kind of comes it, it comes naturally it, it it hits you you know inspiration does and um yeah you just got to go with it as these new albums are to you know they're finally coming to fruition and, and they're releasing later later this summer are you guys i know covid with especially with covid are you guys planning on hitting the road at some point in 2021 or is that something you guys are interested in or you kind of want to get back to the live music circuit i just want to record as much stuff as possible right now and i'm not so interested in doing any live gigs i mean if if we were to the, one of the problems with Calder born specifically and and is that we're all over the united states i mean i'm in kentucky matt's in maryland the drummer bill he's in tampa and the bass player is in houston so this problem with rehearsal and you know a lot of folks who don't play music don't realize and that there's so much involved just to go play one gig and so much rehearse so much time has to be put in and everything and there's really no way to rehearse to go do it so at this point the way i'm looking at it is just to record as much stuff as possible put out as much stuff as i can one after another that's my plan good plan yeah i feel kind of the same way you know it's great to get out there on stage and and to perform and you know be up there but really for me it's like just trying to get as much creativity out as possible is is really the main concern for me right now too are you guys going about recording obviously you can't meet every time to record session wise how are you uh you guys just kind of trusting each other with uh recording your specific sections as it were and sending them over to one individual to get mixed later on or how are you how has that process changed i'm kind of different than years past where you guys could probably a little bit more easily meet together and record sessions obviously with covid and the limited restrictions and everything how are you guys going about that type of work well with color more i write pretty much everything the most freedom i've given a vocalist with this has been with matt because i know i can trust him because i respect what he's done whereas other singers in the past not so much i would have to be in control of everything and, and when we could be in person so that as far as the vocals is i i record a um scratch guitar drum machine and a guide vocal and write the lyrics and then i send the stuff to matt and the other guys in the band and they arrange their parts so matt and of course i've given matt i said you know do if you want to change some uh, some of the vocal melodies alter some of the vocal melodies put your harmonies in or whatever so giving him some creative freedom as well but that's pretty much the way i do it i have a blueprint of a song and i've always done that with cauldron born it's just with the thing going on now you mentioned the covid and, and especially with us even if that wasn't going on we're so far apart that I know that I can trust, you know, my drummer Bill Parsons to play something 
to, to play. He knows what I like, and he's not going to do something I don't like. And, and the same thing with Matt and the bass player. So I've gotten to the point with the guitar player, or I'm sorry, the drummer and the bass player, and that we've been together so long, and then I know Matt well enough to know that I can just turn him loose with it, and it'll be something killer. That's got to be a good feeling, especially you mentioned earlier, Howie, you've been involved with vocalists who don't necessarily have the same interest as the subject matter that the band is about. So having Matt at least know who the hell Conan is helps a lot, you know? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and thank you for talking about this. I don't think a lot of people realize, you know, they think that a band pops into two or three sessions together. They record a whole album and that's it. But you know, it's, that's not it's simply not true. I mean, especially today or especially, Especially bands that are not necessarily, you know, in the same geographic region, let alone, you know, in the same hemisphere. There's there's a lot more work that goes into it and, you know, a lot more time and dedication than people realize. So, you know, I just wanted to, I mean, everything from, you know, both you guys I've heard has always been top-notch quality and I just... I hate when people, they disregard the amount of work that actually goes into, you know, recording these albums, mixing and the, each individual parts that, you know, they just, they get the end product, they listen to it and they enjoy it, but they don't realize the amount of work and the effort that goes into it. So you know, I just wanted to say thank you for kind of talking about that a little bit. Certainly. Yeah. Unless you've been involved in these creative projects, you know, directly and done this kind of thing yourself and done it on a serious level too i mean there are people who dabble in it and they're like well why don't you just just play whenever you can or why don't you just record some stuff or just you know half-ass do this and i don't do anything that way so when you try to work on that level it is work there's a lot of work involved with music there's a lot of work involved with writing and mm -hmm. any sort of creative endeavor and and like i say it's, it's somebody who doesn't know it's not their fault they just haven't been involved in it to that degree to know to to experience you have to experience things to really know things you can read about things all day and talk about things all day but unless you've experienced something directly you can't really know about it i can't can't quite understand the creative alchemy that goes into it is it very much as right. alchemy when all the parts come together and form something wholly unique? Exactly, yeah. I want to take both of you guys back in time again one more time to your very first live show that you played. Uh, did it go off without any hiccups? Were there any shenanigans that happened? No. When, I'm sorry, you're going to say something, Matt. Go ahead. You go first. No, no. Um, I was just going to say... I. I think um, for me, it, it was like, <laughs> I was like 13 and I don't think I could even tune my guitar <laughs> and I had like voice was in that cracking stage and, and it was almost like, it was almost like band practice on stage. So yeah, it, it definitely didn't go without a hiccup, but I don't think for me personally, um, I've ever had uh, a performance where, and I've done a lot of, a lot of gigs where everything goes perfect. I mean, it, it's just a crazy thing and you know, you're relying on so, so many other people, you know, that, the sound guys hearing vocals in the monitor is something that I don't think I've ever <laughs> been able to do. You know, that's always a problem, but you know, you get up there and, and uh, you just go with it. And most of the time people don't even realize you're having these problems on stage, you know, and, and in the end it, it, it ends up being okay. But um, yeah, I can't say I've ever not <laughs> had some kind of issue on stage. <laughs> It always happens. I mean, the first gig I ever had, um, 
I was nervous, so I just got really drunk and uh, and got up there and played. And the whole band was terrible. We were just you know a bunch of kids and playing cover songs. And uh, you know this wasn't even like a what I consider you know real music, original music. But doing these guys were doing was it was back in the eighties, and these guys were doing stuff that was popular like um, Cinderella and that kind of stuff, which I called you know poser music, but got me out of the house and got me where I could meet girls and stuff and, and right. get free beer. <laughs> and so, um, it, it was just first gig was terrible. But they're all terrible. I mean, just to be honest, I used to play with this bass player in Atlanta, a really funny guy. And he used to, he didn't refer to it as a gig. He referred to it as a gag. <laughs> and that's pretty much what most, most live performances are. I mean, something always goes wrong. And I mean, I enjoy it when I'm up on stage playing in front of people, but I know it's not the perfection i'd like it to be and like when you have an album done and it's it's timeless but i mean it because you have something there to show for it whereas a gig well everybody's filming everything with their phones now and that's even worse because you know you know things are going wrong and they're out there holding those phones up but anyway yeah so that's that's why i lean more and more as the years pass toward just recording and and uh, over over live shows now isn't that terrible though like i i just don't understand i go to a show and i want to experience it why are you going to hold a cell phone up and record the experience you're there experience the moment and i think social media has a lot to do with it something to show it's like a trophy you know you come away with or something that's what it's all about man. not to me but it seems to be with a lot of folks i'm gonna circle back to Karnov real quick guys i really like how y'all established the timelines and multiverses kind of similar to how morcock does with the eternal champion for the cosmic ice riders so how much backstory is there and do you guys have other plans for other riders in different ages maybe to explore outside of Karnov himself i had tried to incorporate that a multiverse type thing in Karnoff so that the three of us would be able to incorporate our own mythos into into Karnoff if, if we ever wanted to. So, you know, there's various parts throughout the tale where something will be referenced from, like, you know, a, a story, you know, one of us has. I've even referenced some things that um, in Karnoff of, like, songs of mine. And they're kind of thrown in there, and not everybody will really get that. But that was the reason that I did that. As far as continuing on, I, I'd be, I'd definitely be up for that. And I've talked to both Hallie and Byron, and, and you know they're up for it too. So I'm sure it'll happen. I get emails from fans that that have, that have read it, and uh, they ask me all these questions about Karnov and his universe, and and um, technicalities of what could be possible and all this. And sometimes I'm thinking, I'm like, man, I never really thought of that. You know, they'll ask me like, like, is it, is it only souls of vampires that, that empowers them? Or what if, what if it was a different type of undead, like a lich or something? And I got to stop and think and be like, you know, I never really considered that. <laughs> so there's all kinds of terrain, you know, that hasn't really been explored. So yeah, I definitely, definitely be up for uh, doing more stories. You know, that right there, when fans contact you and they're asking those questions, it's because they're interested, they're invested they you've created you guys have created a character and told a story that people want to know what comes next what about this i mean that's a great i mean that's how mythologies are born and what's like conan a barbarian or anything else you know you've invested in this world and you want to know more so you know that's something to be very proud of yeah it is it's a great feeling i've always felt that way even you know people contact me in the same way from countries all around the world about my music and it's always you know very very rewarding so um 
Yeah, thanks a lot. I, I feel the same. And hey, who knows, maybe you'll be writing 30-plus novels, kind of like uh, Dragonlance, where it's carrying on still to this day. Right. <laughs> Howie, you mentioned H.P. Lovecraft earlier. I just wanted to ask you if you had a favorite H.P. Lovecraft movie adaption. There are a few I like, and uh, which is probably, I'm, I'm probably sort of a, an anomaly as far as a Lovecraft fan, because most of them, you know, people tend to not like the adaptations or whatever, right. that, who, who I've spoken with but um well let me think about that i like the old what was it the um dunwich horror that had i'm trying to think who was in it i think it was made in the 60s um it was some actress who had a really uh goody two-shoes kind of image but she was in this in this movie i don't know if you guys know what i'm talking about oh i I, I was gonna say i can see the cover right now the huge monstrous mouth chasing them that's uh all i remember from it (laughs) As far as that, you know, there's a newer movie done by, um, I want to say, um, Eggers, the guy who did The Witch. Robert Eggers. And, uh, it's, right, Robert Eggers, and it's The Lighthouse. And I think that's one of the most, it's not a direct adaptation of any Lovecraft story, but it, it's certainly Lovecraftian. And one of the most Lovecraftian, successfully Lovecraftian movies that I've seen. I was really impressed with that. I, I really enjoyed The Witch, but I liked this movie much better. And that, and I think there was uh, Dagon, that was a pretty decent one, too, which incorporated some things from the Innsmouth story. But, uh, I mean, there aren't that many uh, Lovecraft adaptations, because it's so, as you know, it's so hard to do mm-hmm. to adapt that cosmic horror, to put that across in a film anyway, let alone specific Lovecraft stories. Agreed. And all the ones you listed are ones I enjoy. Oh, I was actually going to ask Matthew because he had mentioned being a big fan of Paul Nashy. I got. I have to ask, what's your favorite film by him? He's kind of that. He's kind of like that horror <laughs> aficionado director slash uh, actor that people, you know, once you see his films, him, his stuff is amazing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've always been uh, been a fan of his. Um, there's several of them. Um, of course. You know, like Horror Rises from the Tomb is a great one. I like Inquisition quite a bit. There's a, uh, I actually used a line of his in, uh, as a lyric in, um, uh, a song called The Dark Kingdom on, on my latest album. And, uh, there's this part where he holds up the sword and he says, he says, I exercise not with a cross, but a sword. And I, that always stuck in my mind. And I thought, oh, that's badass. I'm going to use that. <laughs> and I used that, I used that line of Paul Nash's. But, um, yeah, those would be some of my favorites. I really like the ones I'm trying to blank here, the, the werewolf ones. What's his name, Howie? I know you know his name, the character's name. Um, oh, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I can't think of it right now, but yeah, a there are a couple of those movies. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, those are great. Um, Valdemar or something? Anyway, yeah, those are great as werewolf movies. Yeah, just like yeah, really the, anything, anything he does. I love Paul Nash, yeah. Are you guys talking about like the werewolf versus uh, vampire woman, that whole entire trilogy? Of, or not trilogy, it's several of them, but... Series yeah, of yeah, movies, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. probably my favorite, werewolf versus a vampire woman. Yeah, also that's also right, yeah. Uh, titled... Uh, well, Pergus not. Yes. Mm, okay. There's one called Count Dracula's Great Love. That's really killer. Um, <laughs> there's a hint, but that's kind of coming back to me. I haven't thought about him for a while. I'm going to revisit some hey, of these. Yeah, there's a great, there's a couple of great labels like Vinegar Syndrome, Mondo Macabre, and uh, I think Scream Factory put out a couple of Paul Nashi collections. But, you know, his, his stuff, uh, it's a shame that people, uh, that's not 
his his stuff's timeless. It kind of, in some ways, reminds me of uh, some of the later horror, ham- I mean, the Hammer films. Yeah, and that might be why his stuff appealed to me. Because, like I said, I was a huge fan of the Hammer stuff. And, uh, yeah, it does kind of have that, that same kind of gothic feel. But then, but then it, you know, because it's a Spanish film and, and it's it's kind of a, a, a bit more... Uh, I don't want to say amateurish, but you know, not to the production level of the Hammer films. Yeah, it has that too, that kind of rawness about it. So, uh, yeah, he's he's definitely a brilliant guy. While we're talking about werewolves, Howie, I got to ask you one more time what the name of that character was in your stories with the uh, werewolf barbarian. Uh, his name is Argentier Fenris. He's a um, yeah, he's a barbarian swordsman who transforms into a werewolf, and you can find. I think all the stories that have been published up to this point in the Snake Man's Bane, which is uh, my book's available on Amazon. It's also available through the Calderborn Bandcamp website and through my Echoes of Crom Records website. If you want, uh, if anybody wants signed copies, they can hit me up on Bandcamp or um, Echoes of Crom Records and just leave me a note that they want the copy signed. But as far as Amazon, I can't sign that. But you can get it for Kindle on there, and you can't for my other two websites. Uh, I think I know what I'm ordering tonight. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, you say were, uh, werewolf barbarian, my eyes just lit up. You can't see me, but I'm just like, okay, here we go. <laughs> so his last name is, uh, is it based off of uh, Norse, Norse mythology? I might be being a little. It is. It yeah, is, yeah. perfect. Well, he's called that when he, um, in some ways, he's like Conan because he conquers most of the civilized world. Eventually, uh, he eventually he's a mercenary, but he once he gets comes into possession of the wolf's mantle, then his ambitions grow to the point where he eventually conquers most of the. Um, civilized world in which he inhabit. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have to read the shit out of this. Oh, the artwork looks amazing, too. Oh, you're looking at Snake Man's Bane now? Oh, I am. That's it. Uh, I love the sword design, and the, uh, that's pretty fantastic. That was also used for the swords, uh, Sword and Sorcery Heavy Metal EP that we did, which was the last Calder and Born thing I released. I think it was 2014. It really just had two new Calder and Born songs. One of them's over 12 minutes long, though. It's called Crom Count the Dead, and you don't have to guess who that's about. But um, <laughs> uh, then we did, the, there were three songs. We did a cover of a heavy load song called Singing Swords on there. And then I reissued as bonus tracks the sword, uh, sword, sorcery, and science demo. So there are a total of seven tracks, but only three of them are new, and only two of them are original Calder Born, new original Calder Born songs. But that, yeah, that cover was used uh, for that. EP as well. Well, Howie, Matt, we are not going to keep you gentlemen all night. We sh- we could probably keep you here till midnight talking about sword and sorcery and heavy metal. But uh, I guess to wrap up here, just you guys, what do you have? What do you guys have on the horizon, and where can folks find you? Um, um yeah, I'm busy with um just all the crazy heavy metal and writing madness as always. Um, the best way to keep up with what I'm doing is on my band's homepage that I also use to talk about everything I'm doing, and that is just eternalwinter.com. The merch stuff, um, I sell most of through Bandcamp, and that is eternalwinter.bandcamp.com. Where can they find and you, you can keep up with me on uh, echoesofcromrecords.com. That's my label and my label website, and you can get the stuff a little cheaper there than Bandcamp because I don't have to uh, give anybody a cut <laughs> or give uh, Bandcamp a cut. And um, 
that's pretty much it as far as uh, books, um, Amazon, and I think that's pretty much it. All right, gentlemen, it's been our pleasure to talk with you. I'll uh, Howie, look for two requests for signed books coming soon. <laughs> I look forward to it, and I really enjoyed it, guys. Appreciate you having us on. Not a problem. Here, we'll do it again when you guys get the album out. Uh, Matt, Howie, it's been a pleasure. Take care, guys. All right, take care. Thank you.